going to be in Luke chapter 18 this morning if you want to open your Bible or uh, open your version to that and follow along. Um, and I wanted to start out this morning with, uh, you know, we've lost um, some people every year we do in America. And we lost real great this year in Muhammad Ali, truly a one-of-a-kind person. And one of those stories that just is quintessential Ali was back when he was in his prime and he was traveling uh, with his entourage, and, and they were all on this airplane together, and they were getting ready to take off. And, you know, the, the flight attendants started going up and down the aisles like they do, making sure everybody's safety belts were buckled, and, and came to Muhammad Ali, and his was not. And she said, sir, before the plane takes off, you need to fasten your safety belt. Muhammad Ali, and this is just classic Ali, looked at her and he said, Superman don't need no safety belt. She looked at him, and her reply was perfect. She said, Sir, Superman don't need no airplane. (laughs) That was great. Well, one of the things that I think draws people to Muhammad Ali and always has and makes you either love him or hate him is that bravado, is that pride, and generally he would actually back that up right in the ring. Um, And so that's that's, that's something that's winsome about him. There is another form of pride or another type of pride that is not helpful, that is not productive, and it would be spiritual pride. You know, when it comes to the spiritual life, it is, it is really a sickness of the soul, and it's something that Jesus had a lot to say about. And before we get to those parables in Luke chapter 18, I would just start out by, by asking if you remember this story that happened back in 2010. I know you do. It was on the the nightly news for over two months and basically really captured our attention. Of course, the story of those 33 Chilean miners. Remember those guys who were trapped um, a half mile, 2,300 feet underground for 69 days, entombed in total darkness. Uh, They were still alive, but the sole means of escape, of leaving, was the tunnel through which they'd come that had just completely collapsed behind them. They would survive, but only by the narrowest of margins. They had to start out with at least only the food that they had brought down for lunch that day. Remember, they were eating like, you know, maybe a spoonful of peaches, a cup of milk each day to get by. Experts around the globe joined with the Chilean authorities to dream up some imaginative, intrepid way to to rescue them. Uh, NASA scientists were involved. Chile, uh, Chinese submarine experts were involved. Uh, the world really came together to try to figure out a way to get these guys back to the surface. Finally, after several weeks had gone by, a, a very small pilot hole had been bored all the way from the surface down into the chamber where they were trapped. And so water could be delivered, food could be delivered. The the miners also asked for Bibles so that they could have a time together in God's Word each day. And and over time, that that borehole was widened and widened and widened gradually until eventually this metal capsule that was just large enough to contain one person 
could be lowered into that chamber half mile below the surface, and one by one, those Chilean miners were brought to the surface. They waited for the rescue 69 days. And when they emerged, one word was on their lips to a man. It was gracias. Gracias to those folks up above who had not lost hope but had worked hard to rescue them. Gracias to their Lord, as I think that man's shirt says. Uh, They were grateful because they had prayed to him each day for their deliverance. That date was October 13th. And those grateful faces began to emerge and be televised around the world. A great-grandfather, a 44-year-old man who was just about to be married. There was a 19-year-old who had been trapped as well. Each one with a different story, but each had arrived at the exact same choice. To trust in someone else to pull them to safety. The world watched with delight as they surfaced, high-fiving each other, hugging loved ones, shouting hallelujah to the heavens. And Max Lucado tells this story and makes a point about God's grace as he tells the story. This is what Lucado says. He says, no one returned the rescue offer with a declaration of independence I can get out of here on my own, or just give me a new drill. No, they stared at the stone tomb long enough to reach the unanimous opinion, we need help. We need someone to penetrate this world and pull us out. And when the rescue capsule came, they climbed in. And here's the question Lucado finishes with. He says, why is it so hard for us to do the same? We are broken. We are hope-starved people grasping for answers. No matter how much wealth we create, no matter the latest amazing medical advance or treatment that that doctors come up with, no matter the scientific discoveries made or the scientific breakthroughs that come out, the human condition over the centuries remains remarkably constant. We come to Luke chapter 18, and Jesus will engage us with two stories about God's grace and about this amazing rescue effort that is at work in our world as God has lowered the Son of God, Jesus, from heaven to earth to be our rescue capsule to deliver us. And if we can let go of our pride and if we can trust Him and get in that vessel of His grace, we will find the peace and the hope that we have been longing for from our earliest years. Parable number one. Luke chapter 18. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. And I want to stop there for just a second. He told them a story to show that they should what? Always pray and never 
give up. And it may be that you have been brought to this place this morning just to hear those words. You're at the end of your rope. You're exhausted. (laughs) You've tried everything that you can think of, and your situation still just feels hopeless. And Jesus wants to remind you to never give up, to keep on praying, to keep on trusting. Here we go with the story. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that same city came to him repeatedly saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think that God will surely give justice to his his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you the truth, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns... How many will he find on earth who have faith? I like that lady. I like her pluck. I like her grit. She was relentless. She knew that there was only one option. She had only one choice for her deliverance. And it was to place 100% of her trust... Her, her total dependence and it is a decision that this judge and he alone could render for her. Too bad the guy was a complete crook, right? Too bad he didn't care about her or Jesus says for anybody else for that matter. Now she was to the audience Jesus is addressing, she was the epitome of vulnerability. She was a poor widow, no resources really to speak of, no family around her to go on her behalf to try to resolve the situation for her. She is powerless, and the good news is she knew that. She knew that. The widow had no tools at her disposal to dig herself out of the situation. She had very little strength on her own. But she did what she could. And that was to simply ask for help and to believe that victory would be hers. She asked, and she did not give up. Despite her poverty, despite her powerlessness, she believed and didn't stop believing that victory would be hers. Now, maybe you wouldn't go as far as me on this, But when I read this story, every time I read it, I'll be honest with you, I do feel a little bit sorry for that judge. Yes, I know he's corrupt. 
I know he's not a good person, but I feel a little bit sorry for him. I mean, he had no idea what he was in store for. He tried to avoid her. He tried to ignore her, but she just kept coming. Finally, she wore him out. So he heard her plea, and just to get rid of her, he gave her what she was asking for. Now, you may be thinking, interesting story. Where is grace in that story? And I would say to you, exactly. Because Jesus tells the story and then interrupts at the end to say, yeah, where is grace in that story? She had to wear the guy out. And Jesus tells us exactly your heavenly father is nothing like that unjust judge. You see, your father knows you, loves you, cares for you. Jesus says you are his chosen. You are his adopted daughters and sons. He's not ignoring you. He's not avoiding you. He cares about you, and he hears the words you pray to him. And when you understand, not just up here in your head, but when you understand here in your heart, how much your deliverer loves you and treasures you, grace comes flowing in. It's at that point that you believe and you trust that the one sent from heaven to earth, Jesus, has been sent into your darkness to pull you out. I heard a story a while back about another widow, and it's become one of my favorite stories. This elderly woman would go out onto her porch every morning, And even though she didn't have much in terms of material resources, she was a thankful worshiper of God, and she would walk out under her porch early each morning, raise her hands to the heavens, and she would say, Praise the Lord! Her next-door neighbor, who was an atheist, got tired of this display. Every morning, praise the Lord! And so he began shouting as loud as he could, Every time she would say, praise the Lord, he would say, God doesn't exist. And this went on and went on. She praising the Lord, he telling her, God doesn't exist. Until one morning she came out on that porch and she lifted her arms to heaven and she said, praise the Lord. But she said, Father, God, I don't have any money to buy groceries. I don't know how I'm going to feed myself. My cupboard is empty, but I'm going to praise you anyway. And he said, God doesn't exist. And the next morning, what do you know? She walked out there on her front porch, and there were two big bags of groceries. Plenty that she would need to take care of herself for the next month or so. 
And she said, praise the Lord, with tears streaming down her cheeks. At that point, that atheist jumped out from behind the bushes and said, gotcha! God didn't buy those groceries for you, I did! <laughs> and she just smiled up at the heavens, raised her hands and says, praise the Lord. He provided me groceries and he made the devil pay the bill. I love that faith. I love that ability, right, to see God at work in her circumstances. She knew God loved her. Simple trust. That's what that parable is about. Simple trust. God will provide. In fact, guys... We've celebrated this already in the Lord's Supper. We do this every week. We know God already did provide. <laughs> Spared no expense. Gave His only begotten. Gave His Son for you. That's how much God cares about you. Can you open your heart to the Lord? Faith means accepting what He is offering. So, this brings us to the next parable which asks this question. Why is it so hard for us to accept what God is offering? Why is it so hard for to, us to believe that that's, that that's real? Why do we continue picking up our axes and shovels and trying to dig our way out with our own power? Story number two. Starting in verse 9. Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness, and they scorned everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, Thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I am certainly not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow. Oh, God. Be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Wow. I mean, you talk about a guy who is clueless, who is completely unaware of the hole that he has found himself in. It's the Pharisee. This guy has such great pride. He knew that his religious resume was top-notch. He looks to heaven praying to himself, essentially. Believing that God must be thinking, 
Boy, am I lucky to have a guy like this on my team. What an amazing human being. At least that's the way he thought. Now, a textual note here. If you grew up going to Sunday school and hearing these stories, you probably, like me, instantly read a story like this and hear the word Pharisee and think, bad guy. Tax collector must be the good guy, right? But we have to kind of reboot and refresh up here and remember how did the original folks hear this story. That's not the way they heard this story, okay? The original audience that heard Jesus telling a story like this would have heard Pharisee, good guy, really good. I mean, if you had been there hearing this story, you would have thought Pharisee, paragon of virtue, of spiritual and moral success. Tax collectors were scum, Essentially professional extortionists, full-time con artists. The typical Pharisee was a person deeply devoted to the study of the Word of God and to meticulously, fastidiously implementing everything that they read in God's Word and applying that to their life. Tax collectors woke up thinking... How can I best best rip off my neighbor today, okay? Well, if these guys were running for public office, you would vote Pharisee, okay? Decent, moral, virtuous person, not corrupt. The Pharisee would have your vote. If your daughter was bringing home someone that she was starting to date, you would be happy if it was the Pharisee, You'd be very disappointed if that guy was a tax collector, right? So Luke tells us this parable, this story is being told for the benefit of people who put their confidence in their own goodness, in their own righteousness, and consequently they look down their noses at everybody else. And let's be honest, those two things go together like always, being prideful spiritually and looking down your nose at other people. They go together like copy and paste, all right? They go together like a ball and chain. A self-righteous spirit feeds itself by constantly comparing itself to others, contemplating its own virtue and the vices of the other guy. Now, that is pride. Okay. Pride is not always a bad thing. Clayton Kershaw is no doubt proud of the way he can pitch a baseball, and he should be. No one else can pitch a baseball like Clayton Kershaw. Uh, Adele, when she belts out a chorus, should be proud of the way she can sing a melody because no one else in the world sings it quite like she does. You should be proud of your kids You should be proud of a job well done, proud of your city for that matter. Pride is not always a bad thing. But coming in with Jesus to the realm of spiritual things, matters of the soul, there pride is always a bad thing. When it comes to my standing with God, there is no room 
for pride. Remember, Jesus is the one who said not, Blessed are the proud in spirit. But he said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Amen? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet. Influential leader. Recognized by God's people as a man through whom God spoke. A courageous person. Uh, Early church father Gregory of Nyssa once commented that when you read the book of Isaiah, it's like he's already understanding the gospel, the story of Jesus. In fact, Gregory wrote this, Isaiah knew more perfectly than all the others the mystery of the religion of the gospel. And I think he's right about that. One of the things that made Isaiah so great was that he understood his smallness. When he came into the presence of God, Isaiah was constantly aware of just how big of a sinner he was. Isaiah chapter 6, he comes in the presence of God and he says, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. So he knew he was a sinner. And he also knew the good stuff he did did not in any way, shape, or form outweigh that. The righteous acts. In fact, Isaiah is the one who writes in Isaiah 64, 6, All of us, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our, think about this one, all of our righteous acts are highlight reel for God. All of our righteous acts are like what? Filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Now that's a guy who gets it. He gets it. He knows that God doesn't owe him anything. God never will owe him anything. Isaiah says, even my best moments... Even my elevated, righteous acts, in God's eyes, filth, garbage. He knew that he came before God empty-handed, with nothing to offer. Oh, that's sad. No, he knew the reality, and he knew the joy that comes with that. That's why he wrote these words from us in Isaiah 1.18. Though our sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. The Pharisee thought much of his goodness, took pride in his track record of accomplishment and service to the Lord, and he had the audacity even the foolishness to come in the presence of the God of the universe and brag. <laughs> it's amazing, really. The tax collector came with this Isaiah spirit, this woe-is-me spirit. He knew he had nothing to bargain with, had no resources to offer to God except one 
simple, trusting request. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Without one plea, but that Christ's blood was shed for me. The tax collector, Jesus says, went home forgiven. He went home right with God. He went home thankful. You don't get to God because you're good. You don't get to God because you know enough or you do enough. Because we can never be good enough. We can never dig our way out of this half-mile deep hole of sin and shame. And so we trust the gospel. When Jesus comes from heaven to earth and dies on the cross for us, we say, yes. We say, I'm in. We say, thank you, Lord. And he raises us out of our darkness and shame into his glorious presence. And that grace is available right now. And it is available for the rest of your life and for all eternity Hebrews chapter 4, 16 gives us this invitation. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and we may find grace to help us in our time of need. Are you in a time of need? Go to that throne of grace with confidence and you'll receive mercy and grace. We'll wrap it up with four thoughts. These are just quick things to think about. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to put them out there. Three things from these two parables. The first one is this. It's that nothing is as dangerous as pride because the last thing a prideful person will do is admit what? They need help. They're good. They got it covered. Thank you, Lord, that I've got my situation under control. The prideful person is cut off from God because they don't think they need his help. As Jesus says in verse 14, and I love the way the message translates this one. If you walk around with your nose up in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. That's where pride will get you. The second thing is this. Nothing is more, so it's destructive, but the second thing is nothing is more divisive than pride because remember what pride does it makes me think less of you it makes me think less of the other person right verse 9 some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else you can't be united with people you can't walk in fellowship with people when you're looking down your nose at them when you feel better than them Third thing here, humility allows me to accept God's grace. And I like this part. If you look at the story closely, it allows me to accept God's grace and to boldly ask for things I do not deserve. Really? Anything I ask of God in prayer, I don't deserve. I ask humbly that God's grace will be poured into that situation or that request. Jesus says in verse 13, this tax collector would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Finally, humility unleashes the power of Christ in me 
because I recognize that anything good that I do is because of him. Any accomplishments of this church, any accomplishments or acts of service or goodness in my life of devotion to the Lord or in your life of devotion to the Lord, we don't take credit for it. We know it is the power of God at work through us. God is channeling His grace, His mercy, His blessings through His people out into the world. It is not by our power. It is by His power. And that's why we have this amazing verse there. Verse 27, Jesus says at the end of these two parables, "...with what is impossible with men is possible with God." What is impossible with Gordon is possible with God. What is impossible with you is possible with God. It's possible. Because when you recognize your need for His grace and you cry out to God, the God of the impossible begins to work in your life. This morning, will you trust Him? Will you trust His grace and mercy that came to you through Jesus Christ, that has been offered to you at the cross. Baptism is a powerful symbol of just surrendering your life to Jesus. You could do that this morning and call out on the name of the Lord. Maybe you need prayers this morning. We come to Him boldly. We come to Him confidently, not because of our goodness, but because of what was accomplished on the cross. We come to Him, as Jesus says, because we, through the cross, are His chosen. Let's call out to our God together as we stand and sing.